You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Arlington Remastered. Chapter 25 Aftermath. Washington Post, front page, written by Raven, District of Columbia, October 26, 1883. Remembering the Arlingtons, six months on. The public assassination of Thomas and Sarah Arlington, director and deputy director of the NIA respectively on April 26th of this year, may well be looked back on as a turning point in American history. They had gone from secrecy to full transparency in the time it took to deliver a brace of stirring speeches. The gunmen who took their own lives immediately after their successful shots were fired could of course not be questioned as to the nature of their conspiracy. It appeared to be highly coordinated in its execution, with two distractions in different areas of the crowd in the moments before the shooters revealed themselves. They could also not be identified, and so their motives remain unclear. The now-famous cry denoting racial hatred, moments before the attack, may have been yet more misdirection to obscure deeper political motivations. Though it may simply be what it appears on the surface. Several members of the Aryan Dawn fraternity were picked up by the security team as the crowd fled, but could not be connected with the gunmen. The Arlingtons on April 25th were unpopular. There was much talk of the recent restructuring within the new departments of the NIA, and with this seen as an opportunity, petitions were begun, seeking their dismissal. Signed by an alarming quantity of Washington citizens, many of them high up the government ladder. However, the people love drama. They love a story, and God help us, we love tragedy. Collectively, we often exhibit love's dark reflection regarding tragedy. We obsess over it. No sooner had Thomas and Sarah expired, when bootleg copies of the Vox tubes containing what would turn out to be their final words began circulating. People were listening in basements and attics, clustered around in groups, hearts pounding as the shots rang out through the scratchy recordings. The next day there was already a change of heart in progress, a different form of acceptance reserved for people no longer around to account for themselves. But the newspapers had another story, one that rocked the nation's capital to its foundations. It was evidence from an anonymous source of the Arlington's bloody escape from bondage 20 years ago back when the Civil War was in full swing. Different papers had different emphasis as to how they presented the information. Stars and Stripes concentrated on the fact that as a soldier locked into a military campaign, Thomas was clearly in the grip of liberating slaves, such as he had himself been. There was perceived altruism in his actions. Stars and Stripes actually attempted to imply that this could be seen as a legal act of war, union upon Confederate. The Herald laid down a thinly veiled hysteria courting piece about the savage murder of the two white landowners by their Negro property, and how this was America's nightmare, 
then and now. The Revolution of the Negro, a curse from the Dark Continent upon their benefactors. A later evening edition included a small article with some retractions. The Washington Post, I am proud to say, focused on Sarah. Even a day to mull over her heavy backstage involvement in the writing of the handbook, a picture was beginning to emerge of just how important this woman was to us. Thomas was clearly the driving force, but Sarah kept the human element and the conscience. An interview with their friend and colleague, Frederick Douglass, revealed what had really happened during their escape, and the grand romance unfolded. Washington had divided itself between those cheering the death and departure of tyrants and those mourning the loss of key political figures, heroes, who now, suddenly, in their absence, seem more needed than ever before. At the funeral, held appropriately in Arlington Cemetery, first Frederick Douglass and then President Grant gave moving speeches. The attendance of invited guests was surprisingly impressive for people so secretive, including Thomas's mother and sisters, and his daughter, Truth Arlington, the White House Communications Director, whose stammering, heartfelt eulogy was broken up by multiple pauses to regain composure, and had a profound effect upon those in assembly. I was not present, neither was Truth's twin sister Harriet. We were at the time on Steamheart, heading west on that voyage which came to its ending only recently. I do not believe Harriet could have given a speech, but the depths of her grief were felt and shared by the entire crew. At the cemetery, soldiers formed ranks to keep back unwanted visitors. A contingent of ghoulish onlookers had been expected and indeed did emerge. But they were cast to either side by a procession that walked from the center of D.C. to Arlington Cemetery. No songs were sung. Hollered insults were ignored. But within the crowd, hands were locked together tightly. An estimated 7,000 people marched the two and a half miles that day to pay their respects to the memory of the Arlingtons. The line spread back far across the Lincoln Bridge. Then came the extraordinary occurrences of the night of May 12, 1883. Occurrences that changed the flow of the city from one manner to another. At 10 p.m. during what was revealed to be an illegal Ku Klux Klan rally in the fields north of the District of Columbia, a night raid was carried out by what may have been government agents. This left 20 dead, including officers Wilkie, Bale, Boyd, and McGinley, who had escaped the Washington riots alive up until that point. Also found dead was Police Chief Dale Stacy. Sergeant Arnold Powell, who was heading up the police team, called out to investigate the aftermath of what might be termed a massacre, ensured that his chief's Grand Dragon outfit was seen by all. We must be vigilant, my brothers. The niggers may be gone from their stolen government positions. They may be gone from the earth. 
But more coons lurk in the gutters of this city, crawling up through the drains to take the white man's rifle property. His food, his wife, his job. They took her job. They took her job. took her job. And we must never again allow a goddamn porch monkey to... What the hell is that? Reports of there being a steam craft present, of even larger size than the one sighted during the Washington riots, bristling with weaponry and laying waste to fleeing, chinless, white supremacists, are of course entirely unfounded. At the exact same time as this, public statesman Dutch Van Tassel was being murdered in his bed. Excuse me, what are you... What are you doing in here? No, 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 put that down. No, no, no! Investigating officers suspected some kind of oriental weapon was involved. Also at this same time, the first sighting of a now infamous individual in this city was reported. It was in the establishment of McGill's Bar, located close to the fisheries on the western docks. Now this is just perfect. You government spooks come marching in here into my establishment, flashing your irons like you got a right. This is a legitimate business. And you got no reason to be down here playing in my yard. I talked to that Holloway bitch, and she seems smart enough to understand. fuck is this? I didn't know the circus was in town. <laughs> All accounts describe a tall, hooded figure, almost certainly male, clad in white armor, resplendent of the samurai of Japan. At the ribcage of the breastplates, three red stripes were adorned on either side. The mask was blue, white, and black, with a red star upon the forehead. Boys, shall we tell this Jap cocksucker in his fancy outfit what we do to clowns around these parts? Oh, I'm quite aware of what you do here. So this is just a flying visit to state that as of now you are all under new management. My name is Mr. White. Fisher. You have the option of being my lieutenant at this location, but I have a sneaky suspicion you're not going to take me up on the offer. What's with the mask? Your mug's so fucking ugly you're scared of showing it? The mask is my face. The only one you need all concern yourselves with. So how's this work? You come in here asking for a cut or something? We're supposed to shit ourselves and roll over? Right on all three counts. Okay. The person to shoot this guy gets double pay for the next year. All right, motherfucker. <gasps> Not a smart man. Nobody else? You all got scared of this fucking goon? How many more knives can he have? Joe, come on, double pay. Uh, Maurice, maybe you'd better listen to him. Fuck you, you yellow-bellied shitheel! Your men are better at choosing their enemies than you. 
Watch closely. Alright, enough of this shit. I'll do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> My fucking arm! Oh god! Why is it, I wonder, that people only seem to talk about God when they're trying to get their own way, about to come, or about to die? The world needs one less of you, Maurice. And I am so glad you declined my offer. There now. As of this point, you all work for me. Joe, I have little interest in the day-to-day -day operations here, so I'm going to delegate you as my lieutenant. Get yourself a nice hat. Yes, sir, Mr. White. Anyone who even entertains the notion of stabbing Joe in the back is going to become immediately acquainted with the taste of his own genitals. Now you should pay close attention, because this concerns you all. This management reshuffle is actually a good thing. I'm going to take you places, starting with the location of the people who are supplying you with opium seeds and stolen cattle. The official word on Maurice Fisher's disappearance was that he left town to visit his grandmother. The whispers in alleyways speak of the swift, theatrical brutality of Mr. White with this man. Also, how in the moments before he was decapitated, he did indeed soil himself. Another man who disappeared that night was a Mr. Eli Roach, an associate of Fisher's, who was found lying in the street several days later. His eyes, staring, a thin trickle of drool at his lips. Alive, yes, but not well. His mind was somehow gone. Who the fuck are you? Let me out of this thing. Do you want to know what it is? I don't give a rat's ass. You can't hold me in here. I'm an American. It's a Chinese water torture device. I'll be honest, the man I asked to make it was not happy with his job. But I was very specific. Let me start it for you. <laughs> oh, this is terrifying. You see, the water droplet that lands on your forehead feels at first entirely harmless. The second might be annoying, as may the third. But it's all based on slow, rhythmic repetition, you see. It's the 300th water droplet that you have to worry about. I hear that one feels like a hammer blow. But that's the beauty of this thing. It does you no physical harm. Everything's all up here. I can take it. I don't think you can. Well, then what do you want to know? Ah, now that's the best part of it all. I'm not going to tell you. But I assure you, Mr. Roach, that if you say the right words, we will let you out of here. Come on, you gotta, you gotta give me a clue. What's this about? Oh no, that would make it too easy. You just think on your whole life. Tell us what we might want to know. Goodbye. Wait, you're not even gonna stay? Of course not, I have a lot to do. 
but rest assured there will be someone outside this door at all times. And if you ever say what we want you to say, you will be set free immediately. <laughs> you keep dripping, because I can't imagine what you want to know. I've done nothing wrong. Of course you have. Farewell, Eli. Wait, wait, wait! If this is about the Arlingtons and that story, I had no control. It was all Fisher. Wait, wait, wait! Wait! The new director of the National Intelligence Agency, handpicked by Sarah, though the two of them only met once, was Catherine Holloway. This was a controversial choice for many reasons, lack of training in this specific field being chief. The issue of her sex was brought up time and again by detractors. Fortunately, as Sarah had anticipated, the public favor for Holloway, thanks to her passage in the handbook, won her instant goodwill with supporters of the late Arlingtons, and many who were not. Miss Arlington. Truth, please, Miss Holloway. A pleasure to meet you. I'm still a little bewildered as to why I'm here. Because my mother saw that while love is a desperately precious resource in politics, it's one of the few that isn't finite. It multiplies. Right now, you are one of the heroes of America. We play this one right and you'll be known to everyone. And if not inspirational to all, undoubtedly influential. And we know your organizational skill set well already. Can I even train up in time before I'm given a situation I can't handle? It won't take you long. The way it's structured now, you'll get a lot more support than my parents did. They made sure of that. And the new department heads have their previous workload balanced among them. I won't lie to you, though, Catherine. This is going to be a high-pressure role. Public-facing. Decisive. A lot of ball-busting to do. Well, that sounds a little more achievable. It's all part of the new handbook that we are going to write. Together. To bring it back to the Arlingtons. When I met with Thomas earlier this year, the idea of fear was broached. My article on him had been a risky prospect, and naturally being brought before a man so strong, a man so in control, a man with the power of life and death at his fingertips, the subject of my being afraid was brought up. I told him truthfully that I was not afraid. But now, as the year closes and the nights draw in, I finally find myself reaching that point. Part of that fear lies in the potential actions of Mr. White. If the rumors are even partially based in fact, then this is an individual who answers to nobody and whose moral compass may not run parallel with the majority. His decisions are already shaping our society, which could precipitate great progress or terrible repercussions for the possibility of a post-Wendigo world. The official record states that this man does not exist, but I have an inkling that if Thomas and Sarah Arlington were alive today, we would not need him. Mr. White, 
Beneath the streets of Washington, the tunnel network grows and spreads. Our underground connections expand each day. Silent Company are becoming a dreadfully efficient surgical strike team that will very soon be operating across America. Thomas W. Arlington will go down in history as a visionary, a reactionary man who saw what was wrong and attempted in his own compromised, cautious way to amend it. He has, in death, garnered more respect and more of a loyal following than he was able to in life. As for Sarah Arlington, whose fatal flaw was trusting the people, her passing, her loss, unlocked me from the chains of fear, as did the confirmation that America is not ready to accept Negroes in a public position of supreme power. That fear that they cling to is my greatest weapon, and I will wield it with deadly grace. I shall watch over these children now, and whether the day when they are ready to grow up comes in my lifetime or not, I shall keep them safe from my place in the shadows. Let the glad time
You have been listening to New Century, Book 4, Arlington. Written, edited, and produced by Alexander Shaw. Director Thomas W. Arlington, General Nathaniel Curtis, Nikola Tesla, President Ulysses S. Grant, Maurice Fisher, Master Toshiro Yagyu, Old Ned, Carl, Seth, Raven, and Mr. White. All performed by Alex Shaw. Deputy Director Sarah Arlington and Clora performed by Maureen Foley. Harry Arlington, Julia Grant and Captain Annie Oakley performed by Loretta Saylor. Communications Director Truth Arlington, Executive Assistant Director of Intelligence Laura Graham and Louise performed by Theo Lee. Major Frank Butler, Captain Samuel Tudor, Chief of Staff Conrad Jacobson, Lieutenant Lawton Sadler, Joe and Police Chief Dale Stacy, performed by Spencer Lieb. Agent Lee, Director Catherine Holloway, Housing Chief Claudia McAvoy, Mrs. L and Old Mama, performed by Sharon Shaw. Agent Jeremy Pines, Thomas Edison, Colonel Joseph Tremaine, Eli Roach, George, Bill and Surgeon General Julius Kaufman, performed by Matt Wardle. Frederick Douglass, performed by Paris Lilly. Sean Riley, performed by Bob Chipman. Senator Henry McPherson, performed by Daniel Floyd. Dutch Van Tassel, performed by Lou Fernandez. Vice President Rutherford B. Hayes, performed by Chris Brown. Commander Calvin Wilson, performed by Matt Ramsey. Corporal Elizabeth Higgins, performed by Megan Hopwood. Private Philip Patterson, performed by Ian Hopwood. Agent Donald McTavish, performed by Derek Ritchie. Chester, Soldier and Callahan, performed by Dan Mayer. Sergeant Arnold Powell, Bishop Jebediah Miller and John Bryant, performed by Jesse Ferguson. Corporal Brent, performed by Anthony Miller. And various Washington citizens, performed by Dan Mayer, Ian Hopwood and Jesse Ferguson. The Star-Spangled Banner and My Country Tis of Thee, performed by Chase Holfelder. Flair and Interstellar, composed and performed by Ross Bugden. Tribal March, composed and performed by Ebony. Emotional Powerful Music by Mattia Capelli. One Wild West, composed and performed by Edward Blakely of Shockwave Sound. All other music, including the title Prospector Theme, composed and performed by the insanely hard-working Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. And many soundscapes were provided by Tabletop Audio. New Century will continue with The Princess Thieves. Arlington is dedicated to my mother, Lynn Shaw, who did a pretty good job of raising a troubled and troublesome boy. Mr. Vice President... Sean? Ah, uh, hey there, uh, Truth. Come on in. Uh, what's up? My mother told me to give this to you last month, and... I guess I forgot, with everything going on. It's been sad in my office. I'm sorry. 
You know, uh, without her, I, uh, I wouldn't be sitting here. She was a uh, remarkable woman, Truth. You, uh, you okay today? Yes, I'll be fine. What is it? It's, uh, huh. It's a baseball. <laughs>